Okay, now uh, today we're going to do the second of our two days on northern and southern value systems. Uh, uh, the value systems which, in my view, caused the Civil War, and today, of course, we're going to be doing the South. Now, as the free labor ideology was taking hold uh, in the North and in the West, the South was developing a value system of its own, complete with a self-justifying ideology, a critique, this time, of Northern society, uh, and, as in the North, its own set of paradoxes, of contradictions. In the South, the idea of liberty and equality that we've been talking about in various forms and various contexts in this course were given their own particular definitions. And these definitions produced a series of apparent contradictions. If in the North the contradiction was whites who disliked blacks also disliking slavery. In the South, it was, or the contradiction was, whites equating the idea of liberty or freedom with the right to own other human beings and defining equality as applying only to whites and, by the 1850s, perhaps certain only wealthy whites. Now, these apparent paradoxes, like the northern ones that we spoke of uh, last time on Wednesday, can be resolved, although with a much less satisfying conclusion than in the north. The southern value system, taken on its own terms, was internally consistent, logical, and offered a powerful critique of, a powerful criticism of northern society. It also offered up a series of personal attributes which are admirable in any society. Loyalty, honesty, charity, responsibility. But even given these attributes, these positive attributes, there's no way around the fact that the logical conclusion of the South's value system, its logical result, was the enslavement of other human beings based on race. And ultimately, the South's attempt to fit slavery into a system of American values failed, both on a philosophical level and, of course, on a practical level with the coming of the Civil War. But this still doesn't mean that the Southern value system uh, before the Civil War is not worth studying, not least because hundreds of thousands of Southerners believed in it and fought and died for it. Some 260,000 Southerners died in the Civil War. And also because examining this Southern value system gives us insight into another, different version of American life, different roadmap of American life, a road not taken, which may say as much about American character as the Northern road, the road that was taken. So. What was a southern value system, and what were its tenets? Well, unlike the North, the southern value system proceeded from an assumption that a natural hierarchy, or pecking order, if you will, governed human relations. Men, according to the South, whatever the Declaration of Independence may have said, were not equal. In every society, according to the southern value system, there were some who were born to rule, born to command, and some born to serve. And in the southern context, 
it was, of course, the large planters who would command. And everyone else, including small farmers, white farmers, of course slaves, and even women would serve. Now, this southern view owed more to feudalism than anything else. Feudalism, which was the social structure that prevailed in the Middle Ages. Feudalism also presupposed a hierarchy with the strong ruling over the weak. So it was no coincidence that the feudal system appealed to the southern defenders of slavery because it had many elements that reminded them of their own system. And what made it attractive is that there was more to the southern system, uh, and to feudalism for that matter, than merely hierarchy for its own sake. Hierarchy just to uh, privilege the strong over the weak. There was more to it than that. Now, southern defenders of slavery believed in hierarchy, but they also believed in a whole set of other values that went with hierarchy, that softened its hard edges. Southerners believed in the duty of the strong to take care of the weak, as well as to rule over the weak, uh, to protect the weak. Southerners believed in making money from the labor of others, to be sure, obviously slavery, but they also uh, believed that there was a duty to temper that money-making impulse in order to support and assist the weak in times of need. So thus, in some instances, the ethos of money first, the capitalist ethos of money first, last, and always, had to give way in the South to the personal relationships between ruler and rule, between strong and weak, between high and low, to the obligations owed by the strong to someone who was not just a servant, not just a slave, but a friend and a life companion. And this brings us to the idea that defined the Southern value system, that leavened and muted the harshness and the, uh, uh, the, 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 the toughness of hierarchy and to its supporters what made the Southern system, the Southern value system, preferable to the Northern system. And this is the idea of paternalism. Paternalism. Now, paternalism is related to the word patriarchy that we talked about a little earlier in connection uh, with the decline of father's authority in the uh, first decades of the 19th century. Now, what was paternalism? Paternalism, this, this central value of the Southern value system. Well, paternalism was a, a set of mutual relations between the slave owner and the slave and sometimes between the planters, the slave owners, and the poor white farmers that we talked about, in which there were clearly defined rights for each and clearly defined obligations for each. Now, for the slave, uh, paternalism meant, as you might imagine, a duty of obedience and deference towards his master. He had to work for him, and he had to defer to him. But the power of the master under paternalism was not unlimited. The paternalist system uh, of relations uh, permitted the slave some liberty, some space, in order to keep him sane, keep him working. 
and afford him some degree of dignity as a human being. This meant that a paternalistic master might allow his slaves to marry each other, although these ceremonies had no force of law. They didn't have any legal force. Sometimes the master would perform the ceremony himself. A paternalistic master also strove to keep slave families together, if possible, even often taking a loss to avoid sending uh, one family member away from the rest. Although 20 to 33 percent of slave families were, in fact, uh, uh, broken up by sale uh, or death, often uh, they were broken up after the death of the master. Uh, there was still an unwritten paternalist code uh, discouraging slave owners from doing these things. Paternalism also meant that the slave owner would allow and even encourage his slaves to engage in religious activities. Now, for the master, religion meant stories from the Bible about obeying one's master, about working hard, and uh, about receiving one's ultimate reward in the hereafter. But for the slave... Religion meant biblical stories that emphasized, not surprisingly, freedom, human liberation, and rewards on this earth. And this subtle push-pull between the slave and the master illustrated another aspect of paternalism. That while the planters had their set of interests, the slaves had interests of their own. And slaves took the opportunity to turn institutions like religion to their own ends, to their own interests. Slaves also used what little power they had at work to carry out a, 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 a process where they gained autonomy, some independence for themselves in their work. They would use techniques like slowdowns at work or pretending not to understand the master's instructions, or quietly sabotaging machinery, or giving troublesome overseers in the fields a hard time, or even running away to the woods briefly. Often when slaves did that, the master was chastened because he was embarrassed uh, by his behavior to the slave, and he would, he would try to entice him back. You know, going to the you know going to the woods for a slave often was like you know like slamming the door to your room and locking the door, and I'm not coming out until I get an apology. You know, masters didn't apologize to slaves, but there were things that they could do to make it you know to make it a little easier to keep the slaves' dignity. And in these ways, slaves uh, at least asserted a limited amount of uh, independence from the master. Of course, it's all relative, but at least some independence. And the paternalist ethos permitted this limited independence on the part of the slaves. Uh, not because it was written into the law anywhere. Uh, slaves had, had few, if any, formal legal rights. But because of the almost tacit agreement between the slave owner uh, to permit some independence in the interest of keeping his slaves working. Now, it was also in the slave owner's interest under paternalism to view himself as a benevolent and kind-hearted master who the slave supposedly loved. And so paternalism permitted a great deal of pretending and self-deception on both sides of the master-slave relationship, with slaves pretending to love their masters and the masters pretending that their slaves loved them and were happy as slaves. Now, 
If the slave owed the master the duty of obedience and deference, well, what did the master owe the slave under this paternalistic ethos? Well, under the paternalistic ethos, the master had the responsibility to take care of his slaves, to nurse them when they were sick, to support them when they were old, to feed them, to clothe them, to help them with their personal problems, to be, in effect, their benevolent father. Because under the unapologetically hierarchical system that was the South, leaders like the planters had a code of honor. A code of honor that said, in effect, while much is given to you, the planters, much is demanded as well. The planters had to take care of things since they were at the top of this hierarchical pyramid. As our textbook so aptly put it, Southern life was not about freedom, individual fulfillment, or social progress. It was about honoring the obligations to which one was born, whether you were a slave or a small farmer or a planter. And the obligations to which the planter class had been born involved taking care of others, slaves as well as women, and even to, the, to, to some extent poor white farmers who lived in the area. To set an example of strength and of manhood, of honor, for their inferiors to look up to, for their inferiors to respect. In the Southern value system, this uh, uh, involved as much self-sacrifice and self-control on the part of the planter as the free labor striver of the North had to to, uh, uh, to improve his own life. The planter, who did not live up to his obligations in the South, who lost his honor, suffered a very high price. Social ostracism, being read out of the company of gentlemen, having his peers sneer behind his back that he was not a man. This is a price no planter wanted to pay. So, if paternalism gave planters a rich and honored life, it also imposed awesome responsibilities, responsibilities that they struggled mightily to meet. Under the all-encompassing rubric of paternalism, then, the South had, by the 1850s, become a traditional society built around hierarchical relationships between superiors and inferiors. An ordered society in which all had an assigned place and were secure and protected in that assigned place. A communal or community-oriented society where people were responsible for each other, responsible for taking care of each other, with the planter, of course, as the superior at the top of the hierarchy, having the most responsibilities in this regard. And ultimately, the South had become an unapologetically unequal society in which it was viewed as natural for blacks to be slaves and natural for whites to rule over them. Uh, natural where, uh, uh, for a society to, an ex- to exist where the Declaration of Independence's clear admonition that all men are created equal was modified in the South to exclude blacks and, in its most extreme form, to exclude poor whites as well. And a society in which liberty or freedom 
meant the freedom to engage in human bondage. Now, such a society in the South, while a capitalist society, was not capitalist in the same all-encompassing money-is-everything sense of the North, as I've described it. Because the idea of paternalism held the slave owner back from acting only on his money-making interest. It imposed obligations on him that, at least to some degree, transcended monetary interests. And in such a society, slavery made sense. Slavery made sense because it flowed logically from its governing paternalistic principles. Slavery made sense because blacks, as weak inferiors, needed to be taken care of by superior whites, since they couldn't take care of themselves. Slavery made sense because it assumed that all societies need inferiors to perform the menial duties so that their superiors, the planters, can advance civilization. And it made sense because many great civilizations of the past, including Greece and Rome, not to mention uh, the Bible, uh, uh, and even the world of the founding fathers in the 1770s, all of these societies had themselves relied on slaves. And it also made sense in the view of Southerners because uh, freedom, in their view, freedom as practiced in the North, was not real freedom. It was just the freedom of some men to exploit other men and for the losers to starve. That's how the South viewed the North. So in this sense, for Southerners, slavery was not only uh, necessary, it was essential to their view of what the good society was, as essential as the free labor idea had been uh, to the North and its view of what a good society was. Now, speaking of the North, when the South looked to the North, when Southerners looked to the North, well, what did they see? Well, Southerners saw in the North a decadent, over-materialistic, brutal society in which man exploited man. In other words, everything that, in their view, the South was not. Southerners' contempt for the value system uh, of the North, in fact, was matched only by the North's contempt for the value system uh, of the South, as we saw last time. Southern supporters of slavery, like George Fitzhugh, who we'll be uh, hearing more about in a few minutes, uh, aimed their rhetorical guns at the society free labor was building uh, in the North and sought to devastate it. So what in the South, uh, for the South, was wrong with Northern values? What Northern values did Southerners find so objectionable? Well, the starters, uh, argued Southerners like George Fitzhugh, while Northern society was ostensibly a free society, uh, 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 its free market capitalist system uh, 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 was exploitative in the extreme. Southerners mocked Northern arguments about the ability of the hard-working uh, uh, to advance, the whole free labor idea of the hard-working uh, rising up in society, because Southerners began to point to a growing permanent working class in Northern cities. And to some extent, the Southerners had a point. By 
1860, about 60% of the northern workforce consisted of employees, not the self-employed or employers, employees. Uh, 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 and this ran counter to the free labor uh, ideal, or at least the southern view of the, the myth of free labor. Strikes were becoming rampant, becoming common in the north, like for example, the Lynn, Massachusetts shoemaker strike of 1860, uh, the biggest strike in United States history up to that time that involved 20,000 workers. As they became more and more common, Southerners got more and more ammunition for their view that the free labor idea was a fraud. The free northern worker, in fact, argued men like George Fitzhugh in the South, were worse off than slaves. Because the slave argued Fitzhugh, when he was old or sick, was taken care of, you know, paternalism, while the northern worker, when he was old or sick, was thrown out into the street to die. If this was freedom, argued Southerners, who needed it? In fact, Southerners like Fitzhugh viewed the slave system as a form of socialism. If you notice the title of the reading for today, uh, Sociology for the South, what he means by sociology is actually socialism. Uh, 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 slavery is a form of socialism in which people were taken care of according to their needs, not as in the heartless North, according to how much they produced or how much they made. Further argued Southerners, while the North had class tensions, the South had class peace, since everyone knew their place in the hierarchy wherever they were and accepted it. Southern culture, according to Southerners themselves, was personalized, warm, caring towards individuals. Northern culture, in their view, was impersonal and cold and uncaring. The North glorified the individual, but the South glorified the community. In the South, argued Southerners, people mattered. In the North, only money mattered. And a man was nothing if he didn't earn money. In the South, argued Southerners, the weak were protected. In the North, they were exploited. To Southerners, Northern society, in a word, was vulgar. A vulgar society. Northerners, in the view of Southerners, were unhappy people in spite of their supposed equality and freedom. And Fitzhugh makes this argument. In the South, according to its apologists, all was happiness. The product, Southern, Southerners argued, of a refined, civilized, and most of all, hierarchical and paternalistic society where everyone knew his place. And to borrow from one of my favorite TV shows from the 1980s, a place where everybody knows your name. And that's very important. What's that, what's that from? Cheers. It's from Cheers, right? Uh, uh, the, the show that spun off one of my other all-time favorite shows, Frasier, which may be even funnier. Uh, 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 everybody knows your name in the South. No one knows your name in the North. And that, perhaps, uh, is, the, uh, is the big difference. But, having heard all this, having laid all this out, does it make sense was the southern value system a viable alternative to that of the north? Could it have survived if there was no civil war to destroy it? Well, while it's impossible to say with absolute certainty, 
you know, what would have happened if the Civil War had been avoided. It's a counterfactual. We do know that Civil War or no Civil War, there were weaknesses and gaping weaknesses, potentially fatal weaknesses, in the Southern value system and in the idea of paternalism. Fitzhugh and other Southern apologists greatly exaggerated the personal bonds that existed between the slave uh, and the master. Now, white masters may have believed that their slaves were loyal and happy and enjoyed being slaves, but of course the slaves themselves knew better. When, for example, in 1831, Nat Turner and his compatriots, uh, uh, slaves, uh, murdered 55 white men, women, and children in Virginia in the bloodiest slave uprising in American history, Southerners, Southern whites, were shocked, mainly because they believed in paternalism, in the bonds between slaves and masters that would stop a slave from harming its owner. And Nat Turner personally uh, was close with uh, his master and his master's family. It didn't stop him. Paternalism didn't stop him, nor did it stop uh, thousands of other slaves who, uh, when they were finally given the opportunity during the Civil War, uh, did not hesitate to run away from their plantations and their masters, no matter how nice they were, uh, uh, as the uh, Union soldiers advanced towards the plantations uh, in search of freedom. No matter how kind their master had been to them, no matter how paternalistic they wanted to be free. So, in the end, in my view, Paternalism was too weak a read to sustain a slave system uh, when the imperatives of direct compulsion uh, were removed, even when practiced by paternalistic masters. Slavery was still a brutal, degrading system incompatible with human aspiration, and, more specifically, incompatible with the American democratic experiment. Now, while it is true that capitalism as an economic form does not always lead to democracy and legal equality, you know, the examples of pre-World War II Germany and Japan are good examples of that. You can have capitalism uh, 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 you know, not, uh, and not have a true democracy. Uh, it's still inconceivable that a social system uh, like the one in the South that glorified hierarchy over equality that glorified bondage over liberty, that glorified compulsion over free human choice, and glorified fixed positions, hierarchy, over upward uh, mobility, uh, that such a system uh, could have survived indefinitely in an America uh, in which, however one wishes to torture the words, uh, all men are created equal, uh, a society that gave the world the Declaration of Independence. No matter how genteel or refined or paternalistic uh, uh, the Southern social system purported to be, it flew in the face of the Declaration of Independence. Ultimately, the Southern social system, system of values, was a feudal one that looked uh, to the past and not the future. And as such, it was incompatible with a culture of an American people who are legendary with their obsession with the future and not with the past. When compulsion was removed, when given a free, unfettered choice, Americans, white and black, rejected the Southern value system, in large part because it did not speak to their hopes, only their fears. 
And while it's always risky to make blanket statements about the culture of a people, I don't think that Southern values reflected the culture of the American people. And thus, civil war or not, in my view, uh, 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 the Southern value system uh, uh, was doomed to lose its battle with the North and remain in vestiges and in pockets of the United States as uh, they do to this day. The social and economic system of the North would become the dominant system in the United States from the Civil War on because with all of its faults and all of its hypocrisies as well noted by Southerners like George Fitzhugh, the Northern value system still spoke to Americans in a way that the Southern system of values simply could not. Now we'll talk about the collision of Northern and Southern values uh, in the American of the, of the 1850s uh, on Monday.